0: The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. It's been some time since we have been in our study of 1 Timothy, so we sort of make our way back there today. It is for me a bit of a bittersweet morning on a number of fronts, but in particular because uh, it is my last opportunity to open God's Word and to uh, to teach before I follow in my brother David's footsteps and uh, head to a different part of the world for a season. So uh, it is sort of an odd feeling this morning, to be frank with you, Um, but it's good to be with you and it's good to be in the Word of God. We're going to look in chapter 6, and because I'm leaving, and uh, because, uh, uh, you know, that's the reality, I just decided I can choose whatever passage I want, in the rest of First Timothy, I'm not obligated to pick up where we left off, I get to make the rules, and if somebody doesn't like it, it's all right, I'll be gone, and you can be mad, and in nine months you'll be over it, so I'm good with that, totally good with that. So uh, I would like to be able to tell you that I just spent this week thinking, boy, you know, what are some great words of wisdom that I can leave with my, my friends before I go? What great words of wisdom do I, do I want to uh, sort of depart on, if you will? But it um, wasn't nearly that spiritual this week. In fact, my whole attitude in looking at the rest of 1 Timothy and deciding what to teach on this morning was really just built around one thought. What, what text do I need Uh, Do I need to preach to myself? Uh, What text do I need to spend some time in before I go? So it's utterly selfish. I hope in some way the Lord will cause whatever uh, was motivated by my selfishness to benefit you in some way this morning. I think that it will uh, because the text that I've chosen, I think is going to have the effect on you that it's had on me as I've worked my way through it. If you would, give attention to verses 3 through 8. Of chapter 6 in First Timothy, and that's where we'll go this morning. Paul writes to Timothy, and he says this, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and he understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension and slander, evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world, But if we have food and clothing, with these, we will be content. Let's pray together. We joyfully, Lord, come before you in your word this morning. And we are mindful that as we open the Bible and we read it, we are not hearing the words of a man. But we are hearing your words message that is to be delivered is your message. And what you bring to us through your word are not suggestions for us to consider or truths for us to think about. They are commands for us to obey. And so Lord, we confess even now as we come to this very, very practical and clear text in front of us. That there are a thousand ways that an enemy would seek to distract our minds this morning, to draw us away from these truths that we might not consider them earnestly. We confess that we have a hundred different strategies, Lord, that we have built to evade your truth. We pray that you would blast through those this morning that we would not be thinking about who it is that we wish was here to hear the sermon. But that we would come to the very clear and cogent realization that you have us here to hear the sermon. And it is we who need to hear your voice. So speak, Lord, loudly. May we obey. May we obey. For Christ's sake, in his glory alone we pray. Amen. As we looked at this text this morning, I I want to just make a statement that uh, I think maybe seems obvious, but maybe it isn't obvious. And it's this, that when a man stands and does what I'm doing today, and that is preaches the word of God, there's always this danger that the impression that is given is that the one who delivers the message is somehow a perfect model of what it is that he calls other people to do. That somehow the one who delivers the message has somehow mastered the message and the principles that he drops on your doorstep. But I want to be clear to you this morning, that is not always the case. In fact, it is quite often not the case. And I would say at least in this preacher's mind, particularly so in this text, it is not the case. As I've marinated on this this text this week and just run it through my mind and done the normal work of preparing to speak to you, I have to tell you it has been truly painful to see how far I have yet to go in obeying the Lord in this particular way. But I trust that I'm not alone, and I trust that if you truly consider what the Lord has to say to you this morning through his word, what is plain in this text, and if you're honest with yourself before the Lord this morning, I just have to believe that there might be many in the room who are in for the same kind of rude awakening that I was in for this week. For I think that this text is probably one of the most challenging, if not the most challenging text in all of the New Testament. I'm certain it's the most challenging in 1 Timothy for people like you and for people like me to obey, truly obey. Not just give the appearance of obeying, but actually obeying. Not just making other people think that we're obeying, but really in our hearts living the reality in our lives every single day of the week, Paul launches in chapter 6 into sort of a nuanced sort of a issue that he draws into as he comes back to a theme that he's talked about several times already. And that theme that he's talked about several times already is this issue that is so prevalent in this particular church in Ephesus. This issue of false teachers that have arisen from within the church, who are leading people away from the gospel, leading people away from Christ, who are teaching uh, false doctrine... And, and, and that's really been sort of the abiding issue in the church that Paul is seeking to come alongside Timothy and help him address. And we've seen it sort of throughout the book as we've progressed through here, this whole issue of false teachers in the Ephesian church. And so he comes back around to this in chapter 6, and as he readdresses that issue and sort of sheds some new light on that issue, he moves us then into the issue that I think is most relevant for us, or at least in my mind for us, This morning, it's what the Lord would have us to consider. But before we go to the central feature of the text where I want to focus this morning, I do want to give some attention to verses 3 through 5 because it's an important sort of introduction into the main issue here. Now, throughout 1 Timothy, Paul's been talking to Timothy about these false teachers. All the way back in chapter 1, in verse 3, he launches right into this issue, right out of the chute. He says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Timothy, I want, you to, I want you to right out of the chute know that my charge to you is that you need to go into the church and you need to command those who are teaching false doctrine to shut it down, to stop it, to end it. A little further in chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, he talks about these same people who are doing this in the church. And he says, some, that's these same people, they've made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I handed over to Satan that they might learn not to blaspheme. I mean, he goes on to talk about not only are they peddling false doctrine, but their, their faith has been shipwrecked. And he names a couple of particular men who are ringleaders, uh, more like, most likely of, of all that's going on. And if you flip over a couple pages to chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, he goes back to the issue. Now the Spirit expressly says, in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So there are liars with a seared conscience who believe doctrines of demons. They're teaching these doctrines of demons and people are being duped and they're being fooled and they're being drawn away from Christ and the gospel and they're following it. And it's an it's, it's a, a tr- incredible danger to the church. But because we've already seen this multiple times and we've already addressed this multiple times in this series, I don't want to spend our time this morning really dwelling on it. I do want to make note of just a couple of things in these opening verses that Paul does speak to this issue and then move on to where he goes from there with the bulk of our time. What he gives us here in this first section, and he talks about the false teachers and bringing this issue back up, is he really focuses on three things about them. He focuses on their doctrine, he focuses on their character, and then he drives drills right down to what's really at the heart of it all, their motivation. And it's really quite plain, so we don't need to spend time on it. But the the main thing that makes false teachers false is that their doctrine is wrong. And that's where he begins by by speaking to these guys about, or to Timothy again, about these men and their false teaching. The very first thing he he says about them is is that their teaching is false. He goes on to Timothy, if anyone teaches a different doctrine... And does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. And that's the issue here with the false teachers. They're teaching a different doctrine. They're teaching a doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ. They've swerved from the truth. They've shipwrecked their faith. And the evidence that they've swerved from the truth and the evidence that they've shipwrecked their faith is they're teaching false doctrine. They're teaching lies and peddling it as the truth. Now by the time that the church of Ephesus is is, is built And Timothy is pastoring the church There has been an accumulated clear and consistent body of truth From the Lord Jesus right on down That has been proclaimed A, A clear body of truth The gospel that has come from Christ Has been transmitted through the apostles And has been spread throughout the Christian church It's clear, it's consistent And it goes back to the Lord Jesus Christ And these men have rejected that message. They've rejected that truth. They've rejected that gospel. They've rejected that doctrine. And they've chosen to teach something altogether different. The message of the cross has now become foolishness to them. And so they've devised a new gospel. And taught it as wisdom. The true gospel of Jesus, they've they've, they've deemed it insufficient. And so they've created another gospel, which is no gospel. Any message that departs from the gospel is a lie. And that's what they're peddling. And we know it's a lie because it's different. It's not just different. It's, it's different in the sense that it doesn't agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word sound is a word that derives from a word that means healthy. It's an unhealthy unhealthy doctrine that they're teaching it does not it does not square up with healthy truth and healthy doctrine it doesn't square up with the orthodox teaching of christ that's been brought to the church through him and the apostles which is just another way of saying the gospel they've rejected the truth They're not satisfied with the truth about man that has come down to them from the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not satisfied with the message that man is sinful and his sin has separated him from his creator and has placed him in rebellion. And that rebellion has resulted in a death sentence on his life, a, a spiritual death sentence that will be executed the moment that he dies and he is sent into an eternity in hell apart from Christ because he's a sinner who's in rebellion against his creator. They're not satisfied with that message. They're not satisfied with the message of Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, lived a pure life, crucified on a cross, buried, and risen three days later. They're not satisfied with that message. It isn't isn't sufficient for them. They want more, they need more. It's not profitable enough for them. And so they devise new doctrine. Which is in fact the doctrines of demons. And they teach it. The basic problem with every single form of bad theology boils down to this. It gets Jesus and the gospel wrong. Every source, every kind of bad theology that crosses your path, you can boil it down at the bottom of it. And what it does is it gets Jesus wrong. It gets the gospel message of Jesus living, dead, buried, raised, wrong. The primary reason that Christians today oppose Muslims and oppose the teaching of Buddhists, and I say... Muslims but oppose the teaching of Muslims the teaching of Buddhists, the teaching of Mormons and the teaching of Jehovah's Witnesses and the teaching of modern rabbis is not because they're immoral people it's because they get Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel wrong that's why we oppose the teaching of every other religion because what they teach is another gospel which is no gospel and therefore it is not good news it is bad news that will destroy both the teacher and the hearer And that's what was going on in Ephesus. We're not told the specifics of the different doctrine. In fact, it doesn't even matter. Because any doctrine that denies Jesus and focuses elsewhere is false doctrine. But it's not just the problem of their doctrine. Because you see, underneath their doctrine, there's a problem with their character. Bad doctrine usually leads back to bad character. There's usually a connection between the two. And here it's very clear at this case that Paul puts his finger right on the heart of the character of these men. It's not just that they teach a different doctrine. It's not just that they're teaching a different doctrine, a doctrine that doesn't agree with the gospel, but there's a problem with their character. And he boils down their character problem under two sort of uh, headings. Number one, they're arrogant, and number two, they're ignorant. At the heart of it, they're arrogant and they're ignorant. I don't know that there's a more deadly combination in a human being than to have arrogance and ignorance mixed together. It's a deadly concoction to be both arrogant and ignorant about anything, but particularly when it comes to the gospel, it's a deadly combination. And these men are arrogant. It's clear that they're arrogant because really to to reject the truth of the gospel that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ and to say that that's nonsense and to put your own truth in your own dreamed up thoughts and doctrines and say, no, 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 don't listen to what he said, listen to what I've said. That's arrogance. My words are more important than his words. Paul says the man who does that is puffed up with conceit. You have to be a pretty arrogant person to say, don't listen to the Lord of the universe, listen to me. What he's told you isn't going to lead you the right way. Listen to what I've got to tell you. It's the height of arrogance. Never mind the plain wisdom of God's word, listen to my wisdom. Never mind what God says, listen to me. Heresy and arrogance go hand in hand. You turn on Christian television on cable and watch and it won't be very long before you see this truth played out before your very eyes. Just about the time that the preacher creates some new wacky doctrine and passes it off as wisdom and knowledge he then asks you to send him some money. But he does it with great confidence and quite often a sense of arrogance. And that's what's going on in Ephesus. And so their arrogance shows up in the fact that they're proclaiming doctrines of demons as truth. And beyond that, they have an argumentative spirit. The way he says this is that they have a sick craving for controversy. Do you see that? A craving for con- controversy. He's puffed up with conceit, understands nothing, and unhealthy. It's a sick craving for controversy. For quarrels about words. That arrogance shows up in an argumentative spirit that loves to quarrel about words, that loves to debate doctrine, that loves to argue and debate and quibble, always trying to get the last word. Listen, I don't want to spend much time on it, but I'm going to tell you this. Even within sort of orthodox Christianity, I'm very concerned about much of what I see in print, online, via, even particularly maybe right now, reformed Christian blogs. Because so much of it is so polemical and so argumentative that many of the people who publish online today and blog online today, it seems like they have in common, at least with these heretics, some sort of a sick craving for controversy. Because everything that they write, or at least the bulk of it, centers around some controversial subject that they have to argue with people about. And if there's not something controversial enough going on in, their, or in sort of their arena, they'll look out at somebody else's arena and create a controversy that they feel the need to correct. And I'm not saying that everybody who has a sick craving for controversy is a heretic. I'm just saying that it is one of the characteristics of heretics, and Christians shouldn't even snuggle up to that kind of a lifestyle or that kind of a way of communicating. If you're reading somebody right now or listening to somebody right now, Outside of your local church, frankly, they're even inside of your local church. And the bulk of what they have to say centers around some sort of debate or some sort of controversy. You might want to change sources for a bit. The true man of God we've seen already in First Timothy is marked by a general sense of abiding humility. And we saw back in the list of characteristics of elders that to be an elder in a church, you can't be argumentative. You can't be an angry, argumentative man. You're to be a peaceable man. And a humble man. But heretics are not like that. They're arrogant, and their arrogance shows up in their doctrine of demons that they boldly proclaim truth, and their argumentative, uh, sick sort of craving for controversy. But he goes on to say they're ignorant people. They're puffed up with conceit. They understand nothing. They understand nothing. It doesn't mean they don't know anything in the whole world. It just means nothing of the truth. They don't understand anything of the gospel. They purport to give people the truth, but they don't even begin to understand the truth themselves. They see themselves as brilliant and enlightened and intellectual. They see themselves as informed, but in fact, they are purely ignorant. They're ignorant. Fancying themselves wise, they are in fact fools fools. He says they're deprived of the truth. They're depraved in mind. Is there a worse description that could, be descript- that could be used for somebody? Deprived of truth? Depraved in mind? I mean, that's a pretty high I mean, that's a, that's a pretty high thing. The truth of the gospel, genuine saving truth, they don't have it. They're ignorant of it. Their minds are depraved. They're corrupt. They do not have the mind of Christ, and their character is corrupt because of it. But it's not just their doctrine, and it's not just their character. He drills down even deeper into the hearts of these false teachers, and he gets his finger right on the main issue of their life, the motive that's driving the whole machine. And this is where we need to go. At the end of chapter, excuse me, the end of verse 5. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Here's the motivation, and here's the engine that's driving the whole thrust of the lives and the doctrine and the character of these false teachers monetary gain. It's monetary gain. Everything that they're doing and everything that they're teaching is flowing out of a motive to get rich. They're peddling their false doctrine. They're doing everything they do because at the heart of who they are as men, the heart of who they are, what they really want is wealth. And they see this message they're peddling as a means by which they can get it. They want to be rich. They imagine that godliness is a means of gain. It's not true godliness that they're after. What they're after is money. What they're after is fattening their own wallets. The best modern-day equivalent of this is the, the modern peddlers of the health and wealth gospel, people who amass. Millions of dollars on the backs of the poor and the desperate by promising them all sorts of things that are not promised in scripture and extracting from them their money so that they can buy jets and everything else and live extravagant lives. That's what these false teachers were after. They saw godliness as a means of gain, they're trying to get rich. Chuck Swindoll said this, show me an individual who enters ministry for what he or she is going to get out of it and I'll show you a shipwreck waiting to happen. He's absolutely right. You go into ministry with a heart and a motivation to, to, to get out of it something, you go into it because you want something out of it and you will shipwreck your life and you will shipwreck your faith and you will, you will damage people All throughout around you. It's what was going on with these men. And so that's the heart of the false teacher. It's what drives their character. It's what drives their message. But it's not what I want to drive home to you today. Because Paul plays off of this. And he goes right to the heart of the issue in verse 6. And it's here that he exposes to you and me the greatest earthly treasure that we can ever find. In verse 6, he says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. He plays off of this issue of gain. These false teachers, they... they they think godliness is a means to gain. And it's as though Paul says, you want to know what? You really want gain? Do you really want to get rich? Do you really want how to know to, how to have gain in your life? It doesn't come from peddling a false gospel in order to pad your back pocket. If you really want to know the secret to wealth and the secret to riches, here it is. The secret to it all is contentment, godly contentment. That is the treasure Godliness is not a means to gain. He says godliness is gain when it's mixed with contentment. You want to hit the jackpot in life? Pursue godly contentment. If you can ever acquire that treasure, you'll acquire the greatest treasure you could ever acquire. You say, Greg, that's a pretty big boast. Well, I think it's true. I think it's true because if you lack this treasure, no other treasure will ever satisfy you. If you cannot come to a place in your life where you truly at your heart possess a godly contentment, no other treasure that you acquire will ever satisfy you. Never. There will always be something else out there that you want that you do not have. What is contentment? Well Merriam Webster says this. Contentment is this a feeling of showing satisfaction with one's possessions, status, or situation. Feeling or showing satisfaction with one's possession, possessions, status or situations. Here's Greg Smith's definition of contentment. Great philosopher deep theologian contentment is this it is a trust and confidence in the goodness and love of God which produces a sense of satisfaction with what he's provided it is a trust and confidence in the goodness and love of God which produces a sense of satisfaction with what he's provided Now Paul makes clear, he doesn't just say that contentment is the treasure, he combines contentment with godliness, and I'm going to shorten it by just simply saying the two together present to us a picture of a godly contentment. Contentment in itself isn't the goal, it's a godly contentment, because the world around us realizes that discontentment is a problem. The world around us sees discontentment and realizes that people aren't satisfied, and people aren't happy, and people, you know, aren't largely living their best life right now in the moment. In fact, a Seattle Times uh, article from November 2016 written by a man named Dick Meyer, I'll just give you a little taste of this. Uh, He wrote this really in a political context, but listen to what he says. He's not a believer, to my knowledge. Doesn't sound like it from his writing, but he says this. Through the widest lens of history, America since the 1980s looks like the most golden of golden ages. The peace and prosperity of this era is unparalleled compared to the rest of the world and the history of our species. Americans became healthier, better fed, longer lived, safer, sent fewer young people off to war, and forged one of humankind's greatest technological revolutions. But through the narrow lens of our everyday lives, the picture is felt different and tougher. Social science shows us that Americans, on the whole, have found it harder to garner contentment, connection and optimism during these prosperous years. And it's felt that way. The fluke of this fluke of, moder, of modernity has come to be called the prosperity paradox. Beyond minimum level of material security and means, human contentment and happiness has not increased in proportion to increased material, well-being, income, wealth, consumer options, luxury, and stuff. Despite statistics that prove humans have never had it so good, we don't feel so good. We're now coping with an extreme political reaction to the progress paradox. The period that symbolically began with Ronald Reagan's declaration of the mourning in America feels like a series of nightmares in America. Americans who are terrified of Barack Obama and others who are terrified of Donald Trump all are discontent. He goes on to say, I tried to write the story of this kind of thinking about America's spiritual challenge in a book called Why We Hate Us, American Discontent in the New Millennium. I tried to understand why so many Americans had come to literally hate many aspects of their own culture. He says, The book was published a few weeks before Barack Obama was elected in 2008. After the election, in every interview and book reading, I was asked, Do you think Obama and the wave of hope that elected him will improve things? Despite my growing admiration for Obama, I grumpily said that I didn't. America's progress paradox was too deep. It was not something reparable by legislation, policy, or charismatic leadership. He's right. It would take generations of new institutions, new traditions, and new sources of kinship, if that... This author, is right. he's beating all around the bushes of something that's very true and very real. He is seeing something that is very clear and is actually a biblical principle, and that is there is really no connection between increased prosperity and increased contentment. In fact, they're inverse in their proportion most normally. And he's trying to make sense of the fact that America has become the most prosperous and wealthy and safest nation ever in the history of the world, and yet people are still miserable and unhappy and discontented. He can't figure out how to fix it. He knows how not to fix it by whoever's going to be elected. But he doesn't know how to fix it. Because the fix only comes with godly contentment. There is no kind of contentment that we can pursue apart from God that will fix the problem. That's what the author here is missing. And that's what most of America around us is missing there's all sorts of ways that people are trying to sort of gen up contentment in their lives they simplify, they get rid of all their stuff they take everything out of the living room and they do yoga and eat healthy and do organic and whatever with the hopes that just simple simplification is going to create contentment but it doesn't create contentment it just makes your food more expensive and your back hurts No, discontentment is something that goes much deeper than that. Discontentment is a disease of the soul. Discontentment at its heart is a rejection of a sovereign God and what he has provided for us. It is a disposition of the soul that says, God, you are not good. You do not truly love me. And you have not provided me with what I need. I need something more. I need something different than what you've given. It is at heart a refusal to be satisfied with God and a refusal to be satisfied with what he has given. And it often arises in our hearts or at least shows up in acute ways when we go through uh, sort of prolonged periods of circumstances that we're unhappy with. A long period of time in an unfulfilling or low-paying job. Singleness well beyond the years that we wanted to be single. An inability to bear children when everyone around us seems to be able to have them at will an unhappy marriage that we're stuck in, physical disabilities that we can't seem to get around, poor health that doesn't seem to get better, a physical appearance that isn't what we want, a job that isn't fulfilling and doesn't pay the bills that we think we need to pay. You just list the circumstance that endures, and if you live in them long enough, if you're not careful, discontentment will rule your heart. or rule it. When we embrace discontentment, we wrongly believe that a change in our circumstances will satisfy us that more things will satisfy us that different circumstances will satisfy us that a different job will satisfy us that a new spouse will satisfy us that being surrounded by different people be free from certain problems will make us satisfied and none of those things will ever satisfy us but we believe they will and at heart it just shows that we don't trust the sovereignty of God we're rejecting his rule in our lives. It's a failure to believe he knows what's best for us and a failure to believe he'll do what's best for us. And it breeds terrible results in our life. It breeds anger, it breeds bitterness. It robs us from loving God truly and freely. It destroys our joy. It kills our happiness. It sours our soul, is what it does. The Word of God speaks to this issue all throughout, but because of time's sake, I just let me point you to the Old Testament, Psalm 23. God has been speaking to us about this issue of contentment and our lack of it forever. How does Psalm 23 begin? Say it with me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. What is that saying? If I have the Lord as my shepherd, I shall can be content. I don't have to live in a constant state of wanting something else. When the Lord is my shepherd, I have all that I need. He's, he, he's like a shepherd and I'm the sheep. He takes me into the field and he provides me with the food that I need. He leads me beside water so that I have something to drink. He uses his rod and he uses his staff. He protects me. He cares for me. Everything that I truly need in life, my shepherd take care of I don't have to want anything else I can be content even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death I don't have to be afraid because my shepherd's with me even there I can be content That's what Paul's getting at in this text. And he says, really, here that there are two reasons why people like you and me lack contentment. And I really, uh, sadly, don't have much time to walk through this, but I want to at least lay it for you. The two reasons that he tells us are this that we forget where we came from and where we're going. That's the first one. We forget where we came from and where we're going. And the second one is we confuse luxuries with necessities. The way he says it is this. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. That's another way of saying we forget where we've come from and we forget where we're going. Your life and my life and every human life is is bordered by two fixed points that are unmovable and unchangeable. Our birth and our death. And what's remarkable about both of those points in our life, Paul points out, and it's really clear and very obvious, that at both of those points in our life, we are completely and utterly broke. We've got nothing. When we pop out on day one, we got nothing. All of you ladies who've had a baby, I guarantee you've never been in the hospital and had that doctor lift up the baby and say, well, look what he brought. (laughs) Never. Never. Not one time, right? We come into the world with nothing. Nothing. Completely and totally helpless and dependent upon God through our parents to provide us everything we need. We exit the world the exact same way. With absolutely nothing. Completely helpless and dependent on God. Just like we come in the world with nothing, we cannot take one single thing out of it. We leave the world completely broke. Every possession we own, every single possession that we own is left behind. It does not cross the threshold of death. We come into the world with nothing, completely dependent, and we leave the world with nothing, completely dependent. And our lives consist of The moments that gather up in between those two fixed points. And in between those two fixed points, we amass an awful lot of things. And those things become very, very important to us. We fail to understand these truths and so we we begin to believe like the ancient Egyptians did that somehow we can pile all of our junk up in a pyramid with our body, our dead carcass when we die and somehow that's going to make it go with us. But here's the, the rude reality. The junk stays in the pyramid and your soul goes broke. Job understood this. In Job chapter 1, after he lost every treasure that he had, a rich man after he lost everything, what does he say? He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I'll return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This man through grief and tears and all sorts of loss has an abiding sense of contentment in his heart because he knows where he's come from and he knows where he's going. He feels the sting of loss, but at his heart he's a man who's content because he knows the Lord. And he understands that he came with nothing and he's going with nothing. And it's okay if some moments in between he has nothing. The same Lord that brought him here and the same Lord that's gonna get him safely over will get him through this moment of loss too. The undeniable truth about our wealth and our possessions, every material thing is fleeting. It helps sustain our life It helps us accomplish some earthly good. It brings us temporary joys, but it does not last. It does not last. We forget where we've come from and where we're going, and we confuse luxuries with necessities. He says, But if we have food and clothing with these things, we will be content. So there he is. Paul sets the bar at, at where it ought to be for the level of contentment for a believer. It's at this level of acquisition that our contentment should rest. If we have food and we have clothing. That word clothing is a broad word that means the clothes we wear, but it also encompasses the roof over our head. So the idea is if we have food and clothing and shelter with these things, we can, like the sheep in Psalm 23, be perfectly content. It is at that level that contentment must set we must come to the abiding conclusion in our hearts that in between birth when we come here with nothing and death when we leave here with nothing that what we really need in our lives is food and we need shelter and we need clothing and if those things are provided there is not one solitary other thing that is a necessity of our life everything else is a luxury it's a luxury but you and I confuse our luxuries with necessities And we begin to think that the things that we have are necessary for our lives and that we desperately need them. And so we give inordinate amounts of times to loving them, to keeping them, to holding them, to protecting them, to securing them, to watching them grow, to keeping other people from getting them. You see, the problem with our wealth and our possessions is that they give the illusion of satisfaction, but they actually produce misery. They give the illusion of satisfaction, but they produce misery. Ecclesiastes, the writer Solomon, says this, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Do you get that? He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. What does that mean? When you pursue money in your life, it doesn't matter how much you can acquire of it, it will never satisfy you. There will always be more. Nor he who loves wealth with his income Listen, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? The more stuff you accumulate, the more people there are who want to get it. And the more problems you have securing it. If you read Ecclesiastes, he goes on to say, it's even stupider to accumulate all this stuff because what's going to happen is one day you're going to die and you're going to leave it to some ungrateful kid who didn't work for it and who doesn't appreciate it who's going to squander it. What's the point of that? Listen to what he says. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, a common laborer. Sweet is his sleep, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. The common laborer who doesn't have hardly anything, he puts his head on the pillow at night and he sleeps. The guy who's rich, his riches keep him up at night with worries and anxieties. You say, Greg, is Paul, is Paul saying here, it's my last sermon, I can preach as long as I want, I'm just telling you. Is Paul condemning wealth? Is he advocating poverty? Is he saying we need to just go get rid of all our junk and go buy a shack in the woods and live there with a candle and a, a pot of rice? No. In fact, this text isn't even directed at people who are currently rich. This text is directed at those who want to be rich. He goes on to talk to the people who already are rich, and he has some things to say to them. But this text isn't about the rich. This is about those who want to be rich. Those who aren't content with what they have who want more the question is not, what do we have? The question is what it is that we want. Contentment is in every circumstance, trusting God to provide and satisfied with his provision. In every circumstance, trusting God to provide and being satisfied with his provision. The best thing I read all week was this definition of contentment. If you've been thinking about lunch for the last 40 minutes, tune in and put this in your brain. Contentment is knowing that if I'm not satisfied with what I have, I will not be satisfied with what I want either. Contentment is, if I'm not satisfied with what I have, I will not be satisfied with what I want either. I was talking to a, a friend that goes way back on the phone this week. A friend who had made some foolish choices in his life. And a lot of those foolish choices had flowed from a lack of contentment. And he found himself in a place where he never dreamed he would be. Chasing after an illusion that promised pleasure and satisfaction. But it was really just a phantom. A demonic lie. And I said to him, friend, if you're not content with what God has already provided you with, you will not be content with the thing that you pursue when you finally get it. You'll be just as empty inside as you are right now. Because the problem isn't what you have or don't have. The problem is not even outside of you. The problem is inside of you. You lack contentment. You are in rebellion against the God who created you. You are saying, in essence, to him, the Lord is my shepherd and that is not enough. Jesus is not enough. God, what you've provided for me is not enough. I need more. More. I need more. Alistair Begg, when he preached this message or this text, he gave an illustration of an article that he had found in the paper. It was a sad article about a man who had committed suicide He was a man who was extravagantly wealthy. And when the police found his body, he had $30,000 in cash strapped to it. And here's what he wrote. He said, I've discovered in my life that piles of money do not bring happiness. I'm taking my own life because I can no longer take the solitude and boredom. When I was an ordinary worker in New York, I was happy. Now that I possess millions, I'm infinitely sad and prefer death. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, the Bible tells us. It's what Asaph told us in Psalm 23 that Josh read earlier. And I wonder about you. Are you like me? As we look at this text and the plain meaning of it, does it strike a chord in your heart? In what ways this week have you lacked contentment with, with, with what God has provided you? In what relationship are you not content with what God has given you? Husbands, are you content with the wife? And I mean content like satisfied with the wife that the Lord has blessed you with. Wives, are you satisfied, content with the husband the Lord has given you? Or are you dreaming and wishing and fantasizing about someone else? Are you satisfied with the level of lifestyle and income the Lord has provided for you? Are you always wishing and dreaming and hoping for something else and something more? Are you satisfied and content with the place that you find yourself in life? Or are you always looking for the next thing and the next place and the new season? I don't know what ways discontentment roots itself down into your hearts, but I promise you, if you look at it pretty closely and you're honest with yourself, you'll see that discontentment has little roots that wind themselves all throughout your heart in so many ways. If you think about the things that you've thought about this week and the things that you've said this week, in what ways do your words and actions and attitudes display a a discontentment with what God has provided you? In what ways are you grumbling and complaining and whining in your life and angry because you don't have what you don't have that you think you need? Anxious trying to keep the stuff that you have because you desperately think you have to have it and you're terrified that it'll one day be gone. Only you can diagnose that by the help of the Spirit of God who helps you. But I want to challenge you to sort of apply this by just praying a prayer that I'd hope to have on the screen, but I'll just read it to you. simple. Lord, help me to be satisfied to receive what you give, to lack what you withhold, to relinquish what you take. Lord, help me to be satisfied to receive what you give, To lack what you withhold. To relinquish what you take. I dare you to pray that all week this week. And use it as a diagnostic for your own soul. May the Spirit of God generate within you and within me a genuine contentedness with who we are and where we are and what he's provided for us. Lord Jesus, these dear folks have been patient this morning. And we've heard hard truths that we do not like to hear. We do indeed confuse necessities with luxuries. We do quite often forget where we've come from and where we're going falsely believe that in between our birth and our death, we're entitled to certain things. And Lord, if we're honest, if we're really honest before you this morning, there's a thousand ways where discontentment roots down into our soul. I pray for my friends this morning. I pray for myself. Lord, that you would help us to be satisfied Satisfied with what you provide. That you would help us to trust you and find joy in whatever it is that you've given us. That you would crucify in us the desire for more. That we would truly be able to receive what you give, lack what you withhold, and relinquish whatever it is you choose to take. And that we might find in doing so the secret jackpot, the greatest earthly, earthly treasure we could ever find, contentment. Forgive us, Lord, for our discontent. Help us to crucify it, nailing it to the cross of Jesus. And we realize, Lord, that we can't just pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and, and, and do better. We can't just go simplify our lives by getting rid of our stuff. No, that doesn't root up what's in our heart. We have to look to Jesus Christ, your son, who died, who shed his blood in our place, who died for our sin, and who by the power of his spirit changes us at the core of our being. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would change us. Birth within us a contentment that abides. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.